Four iconic stripes, blue, yellow, red, and green. A pattern we're almost all certainly familiar with, whether you see it in the mall, on a blanket, or on your favorite pair of mittens. That's right. Today we're talking about the Hudson's Bay Company collection. Welcome to Notice History. This is the podcast where we uncover the history that's all around us. We're your hosts, Robin Mullins, Nick Bridges, and Keely McCabot. All right, let's do a round robin of every HBC item we can think of. Uh, Nick, do you want to start us off? Flip-flops. Coasters. Umbrella. Jacket. Apron. Socks. Sundress. Mittens. Hat. Canoe. Ornaments. Dog hole. Dog collar. Dog leash. Baby onesie. I feel like there's so many. Okay, um... Mugs. How about mugs? Sweater. Blanket. Barbie. Barbie? That's just... That's too much. It's, it's too easy. That's peak. That might be peak. peak HPC. Uh, HPC, yeah. Backpack. Um, tea towels. There's so many. Awesome. So, if you couldn't guess, today we're going to be talking about the HPC collection. Most of us have owned an item from the HPC collection at some point in our lives, the most ubiquitous item being those red mittens from the Vancouver 2010 Olympics. Every winter, when the temperatures drop, our collections come out, and we all become walking emblems of this historic Canadian company. But what, exactly, is the history of the Hudson's Bay Company in Canada? And why do we all share such a strong love for that stripe pattern? How exactly do heritage and corporate marketing coexist together? Let's take notice of the history present in the HBC collection. So the Hudson's Bay Company, which I'm sure most of us are familiar with, even if you've never bought something that is wearing the HBC collection, we've almost all been inside of one of their stores. Uh, we've seen their, their giant sign on the sides of malls all across the country. And in general, we just, we've all been bombarded with this aspect of our heritage. Uh, it's pretty hard to ignore. So they were actually founded in 1670 through incorporation by the English Royal Charter. This charter was issued by King Charles II, and he gave the company a trading monopoly over all the territories that drained into the Hudson's Bay, hence Hudson's Bay Company. The charter was actually issued to, quote, the governor and company of adventurers of England trading into the Hudson's Bay. That's pretty well the most 17th century (laughs) title you can give to anything. I know, right? Like, the adventurers. I mean, they were just really the wealthy backers, but that's a pretty fun name to have if you're just like, I'm just going to front you some money, but call me an adventurer. Well, the drainage basin of the Hudson's Bay includes parts of current-day Labrador, Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and the Northwest Territories, so like most of the country. It encompasses nearly 1.5 million square miles, or 40% of modern Canada, and 15% of North America, which is kind of a big deal. I know, it's basically like, that is Canada, it feels like. So Mm -hmm. it's not really all that surprising that we've been in, it's it's been inescapable to all of us. I mean, you know, it seems rather large. Now, the HBC Charter gave the company not only trading rights in the area, but the authority to administer the territory like a colony, leading to the territory being named Rupert's Land after the company's first governor, Prince Rupert. 
Now, Ed Kavanaugh's written a really good article on this whole topic where he takes a thesis originally written by Philip J. Stern on the East India Company and a book called The Company State, where he basically outlines how the HBC acted like a state with their own authority, their own law. He shows how certain sort of legal cases that happened in Rupert's Land in this period that would lead to transportation or death or huge fines in England were just sort of swept under the rug. This sort of little ways in which the HBC like asserted their authority across their vast territory. Even going as far as to create, they would call it sort of home guard. East India Company had its own army. The Hudson's Bay Company was trying to do the same thing with local indigenous people around the Hudson's Bay especially when they were in trade wars with the Northwest Company. We will have that article up on the website as well in case people are interested in learning more. So definitely check that out. It'll be in the show notes and on our blog. So the charter also laid out the rights and obligations of the company from minerals to forestry and fur trading rights to the requirement to govern the people, maintain order, and even search for the Northwest Passage. So right along the same lines as the article that Nick was talking about, um, they really had just a huge amount of governance at their disposal. They really encompassed everything that you could think of. It was a governing body. Basically, there's, they're given full sort of jurisdiction over the area, and there's no oversight. Zero. Well, because who, who's around to give oversight? Exactly. Right? It's just the only people they um, are really reporting back to are the heads of the company and the people who've bought in stock in the HPC. But the state itself isn't really involved until later on. So it's the Wild Northwest instead of the Wild West. So fun fact, uh, the charter also required the company to pay rent to the king or his heirs whenever they visited Rupert's land. So the rent was set at being two elk skins and two beaver pelts. Things that were, you know, actually pretty popular at the time when they were first starting this whole thing out, but then have become more ceremonial over time. But the first time a member of the royal family came was 1927, and the HBC gave the future King Edward, Edward VIII, that is, this rent. So they handed him over then, the two elk skins and two beaver belts, just like it was written in the paperwork, but fulfilled that whole thing. And this actually continued until 1970, which is when the beaver pelts were given on live beavers. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II was donated two beavers, and she donated them, donated them to the Winnipeg Zoo. As we mentioned earlier, competition was fierce, particularly with the HBC's chief rival, the Northwest Company. Eventually, in 1821, the two companies merged, finally solidifying the HBC's monopoly and encouraging the British government to grant the HBC trade rights through all of British North America. Finally, in 1868, a deal between the HBC and the year-old Canadian government at the time paved the way for Rupert's land to be surrendered to Canada which is really interesting. It's like, this is owned by a company, and it is being surrendered to the government. Like, yeah. Becoming a country. Like, yeah. It's it was crazy. just a giant company land. We don't yeah. even, I, I can't even, would it, be, it would be like Google owning yeah. a giant, their huge campus, and be like, mm, yes, we will bequeath this to you yeah. in the United well, States. It's, it's like still happening, right? You just got to mm. look at, because this is like the first era of multinationals going out into the globe. And yeah, they own land. Yeah, they run states. It's still happening on a different level, different kind of scale, influencing governments, getting tax breaks, that sort mm. of thing. Yeah, they're just running the show. They can do whatever they want, and they own the land, basically. They have, uh, the legal term is dominion. So, fun fact, because of the near-colony-like nature of Rupert's land, in an odd way, the HBC is a founding province of Canada. I mean, it's debatable, but it's an interesting thing to consider. Yeah, like, really, when you, when you think about it, the whole idea that 
companies can act like states mm-hmm. challenges the nature of the state itself. Because the state, like as we think of state power coming from the Treaty of Westphalia, 1648, this totally challenges that. Especially when you look at the East India Company, because it's founded before the Treaty of Westphalia. But this still buys into that, right? The HBC is just running the ship. Exactly. And it's interesting because, I mean, for them, they would not have really balked at it or or thought anything of it. But for us, because it's not something we're familiar with in the same sense, I mean, it is still happening today in different different ways. Different contexts. In different contexts, yeah. It's just, it seems and feels so foreign to consider the fact that a company could essentially be a state. But it's true. And it would be interesting. I wonder how our uh, Canadian coat of arms would look if we gave the HBC, you know, their, like, nice little piece into the shield or something. All stripes. (laughs) 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 There'd be a simple four-color solution (laughs) right across it. (laughs) The original charter itself is actually preserved in the Hudson's Bay Company corporate head office in Toronto, where it is, like, it's been restored and it's kept on display, which makes me think of national treasure. Which makes me think we right. should steal it. Oh, wow. <laughs> we'll give it back, but we could have a caper. Or we could just go visit it. And take I guess it. Uh, Can you visit it? Unclear. Unclear. <laughs> we, we have not been able to confirm at this time whether or not the public is able to access this document. But I'm sure that it's in a boardroom somewhere or in a very ostentious place because it's, it's a pretty cool document. So as the fur trade ended and the HBC sold off their land to the Canadian government, the company was in a period of real invention, like serious reinvention, based around the realization that money, not furs, what, was the new currency on the continent and selling goods rather than raw materials was the future. So this whole shift is what led to the modern HBC as we know it, being in malls, being this huge department store, um, being able to buy stuff online, and seeing people all over Canada wearing these striped colors. Um, Now the company has decided to use their cooperation as like their history and their heritage as the new currency to be able to sell goods to us. So they're really banking on that whole shared values, like Canadian identity and everything. It's, I mean, it's working out. The, so. the Timmy's model, yeah. if you will. <laughs> yes, exactly. The Timmy's model. We'll have to do an episode on that. So should we springboard into the HBC collection? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> The HBC Collection is a line of diverse products offered by the Hudson's Bay Company. It was originally launched in 2009 and continues till this day, if you haven't noticed. The line is inspired by, uh, as they put it, the company's historical icons, and this is exemplified by the line's signature item, the HBC Point Blanket. So along with this launch of the line in 2009, the company rebranded in the wake of being acquired by a New York firm, NRDC Equity Partners, so it is no longer in Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, our buddies at the NRDC uh, made included changing the name of the department stores from to Hudson's Bay rather than the Bay, which that's what I grew up knowing it as, the Bay. The big yellow logo. The humongous B. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was like a big bow type kind of person. I think it might have been. Maybe they were trying to go for the charter look. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is like it's it is really good branding, and its focus has like shifted to as we've been talking about this historical importance, like the historical importance of Canada. It's been a push to offer a wider array of external brands through international acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the line is basically just a curated series of products now. They're created by a whole bunch of different artisans and manufacturers and designers. There's these smaller companies and creators who manufacture items, which the HBC then sells and sells its heritage through. You know, the HBC oversees which items are going to make it, and a 
apparently tries to, you know, make it seem like a cohesive line. So it does all kind of follow the same branding material and the branding languages and things. You know, it's really themed around this historic reference to the blankets and to who this company is and how it's been such a huge fabric of our oh, country's identity. Slid that one in there. Oh, oh man, guys. <laughs> I'm just killing it today. <laughs> the items in the line range widely from things we mentioned earlier, like the blanket, the coats, but other things that we failed to mention, like artisanal maple syrup, real coyote fur throws, steel horseshoes, hand axes, and canoes. But that, that last end of the list also shows how they're trying to bank in on that history, too. Like, why would a department store make a canoe? That's true. Or a hand axe. And almost yeah. every, uh, they have, like, you know, they have the whole display section usually in each department store. So the near an entrance um, that will be, you know, widely used or like popular entrance often into the mall itself that will have this huge display put together with everything from the HBC collection that that store carries. And often they will have a canoe as part of it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not that many people are walking in and dropping a couple K on a canoe, yeah. but they got it there oh, just in case. It's more than a couple K. The canoe is $7,500. Oh, wow. But you can get things for the collection for yourself for as low as 12 bucks. So the central <laughs> branding of the line is the simple four color stripes. Blue, yellow, red, and green in ascending order, or from left to right as the case may be. And the majority of the items in the line have this motif on them. There are different things. There's a tote bag with a moose on it, and then they also have... Um, Actually, I have a tea towel with the old map of the HBC on it, and oh. that's been on my Christmas list for the past four years, and I have yet to receive it. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> still waiting. Um. <laughs> the HBC point blanket that anchors this collection has its historic roots in the fur trade. Originally, wool blankets and the capote coats made from said wool blankets were made and sold by a variety of independent traders. They were popular because they were easier to make and so than animal skins of matching sizes, and they were better at keeping in heat even when they were wet. So they were referred to as point blankets due to the style of sewing used to make them. Points refers to the short black lines woven into the hem of the blankets under the lowest strip. And each point is a woven black line about four inches in length, with a half point being two inches in length. This all means the number of points indicates the overall size of the blanket. Effectively, it was a size tag sewed into the cloth, allowing size to be determined without unfolding the blanket itself. So when you're selling it or you're buying it, you know what you're going to get. pretty cool. I mean, like, that's an interesting way of uh, going about not wanting people to muss up the merchandise. HBC really ahead of the curve on this. Pioneer of its time. So the point style itself was invented by French weavers in the 1700s, and the name is derived from the French word emporté, meaning to make threaded stitches on cloth. So, uh, really on point. (laughs) Fun fact, the point is the name of the HBC's official blog, and it is primarily a marketing tool with images of collection items in everyday stage use. The HBC credits independent fur trainer Germain Mogenet with convincing the company to sell the point blankets as a key product when he came on board with the company in 1779. And once the blankets began selling at Fort Albany, their popularity became clear, and it's still happening today, which is pretty impressive. I don't know many companies that can say that they're still selling the same product 200 years later. Yeah, relatively speaking, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool. And uh, for those of you who are wondering, Fort Albany is on Hudson's Bay. So it started at the bay, spread through all of Canada. Started at the bay, now they're here. (laughs) Thanks, Rach. (laughs) (laughs) Keep it Canadian, guys. (laughs) Can come. Can come. (laughs) 
At the end of the 18th century, the HBC started branding their white blankets with the four stripes. So this is when that iconic design first came out on the scene. Um, the colors were selected due to the fact that those dyes were easily available at the time, and it would take another 50 years before the order of the stripes would become fixed. It was a mix and match. Took a little time to were figure they, out. Were they always stripes? They were Chevron's. always stripes. Yeah. Always stripes? They were always stripes, but it might have been like, you know, like blue, red, green, yellow, uh, green, right. blue, <laughs> yellow, red, or, you know, whatever else it could have possibly been. Red, red. But, you know, so you still knew what you were getting, but it was, you know, more fun, more of like a surprise, like a kinder's <laughs> plan. There you go. <laughs> so there's actually an HBC point blanket collector's market with prices ranging from market prices to hundreds of dollars, depending on the quality. So people really want to try to get these like vintage blankets that have all these different colors in them that are in different orders and things it's really become you know an antique surprise type thing where everybody's just looking for them and they can fetch a lot the author and hbc point blanket collector harold tickner has a website and two books on the subject of point blankets that man found his passion he did and he was blankets (laughs) hey i'm gonna do it so while the hbc notes that their blankets were sold widely to europeans first nations and metis HBC Heritage has an FAQ addressing the elephant in the room, or moose in the room, and making the historical case that the HBC and their point blankets have no connection to the use of smallpox blankets as a biological weapon against First Nations peoples. HBC Heritage Services argues that it is unclear if blankets were used in this way and outlined the American origin of said myth before focusing on the HBC's efforts to inoculate all people in its territories against smallpox. However, due to this connection, whether it is real and fair or not, many First Nations peoples refuse to buy or use the HBC blankets. So I actually went onto the HBC Heritage website because I thought that this was really interesting that they, among all of the many FAQs that they have, and they've got a lot, they have an entire section of the FAQ just dedicated to the blanket. And of course, the last is this one. And I love the way that they termed it. It says, I have heard that HBC sent blankets infested with smallpox to infect First Nations. Is there any truth to this story? Short answer, no. <laughs> That's what they say. Yeah. But they do They do give quite a lengthy um, outline. They really make the case for why they shouldn't be lumped in alongside this aspect of history. They say that they had nothing to do with that use of smallpox blankets as biological warfare. And then they do talk a lot about um, where that originated, the letters of General Jeffries or Amherst, commander of the British forces in North America in 1763. It really goes on to address this issue. And I mean, I think that they had to address it. I'm not sure if everyone agrees with their take on things. I mean, mm. I think we can. I think we all know that people don't agree on how they view yeah. their blanket um, and what it symbolizes. Even if their specific blankets weren't used, it's certainly been you know an object that symbolizes things mm. to a lot of Canadians, and it's uncomfortable and it's mm. not great. So, I mean, the HBC has challenged the perceptions that the HBC point blankets ever carry disease. But these attempts have not always gone well. One blunt HBC website post that has since been removed stated, As far as HBC is concerned, extermination was never a strategy of the company. Killing them off would be detrimental to business, all questions of morality aside, end quote. Since then, they have apologized for this and stuck to the defense outlined above by the HBC Heritage Service. Between 2009 and 2016, Leah Dechter and Anishinaabe curator Jamie Isaac responded to then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper's declaration that Canada had no history of colonialism by sewing together HBC blankets for a traveling exhibit. First Nations peoples were invited to etch stories of their experiences with colonialism into the blankets. 
Other First Nations artists have also used the HBC point blanket as a symbol of colonial oppression. So something interesting about that whole protest of when the First Nations were buying those blankets and then etching their experiences into them is that they actually had to buy the blankets in order to do that, which is really unfortunate mm-hmm. because it's, it is still a powerful message. But on the other hand, they're still having to purchase them, right? So it's it's a really awkward and like difficult space for them to have been in because in order to accomplish this thing and express themselves in this really important way, they still had to be giving money to this company that they were protesting. And I just find that really heartbreaking Mm. that it's so difficult to be in that position. Yeah. I think like as an artwork too, like that plays a huge part in it too. Like the idea that the act of the artwork itself involves becoming complicit in the company and supporting the company. I think that says a lot about indigenous Canadians or indigenous people living in Canada Mm. today and how you have to exist in that world, even if you're opposed to it. So I don't know. I think that's a really amazing project. I think that's really cool. Yeah. It's such an interesting way of being able to speak out and speak back. Right. It's fascinating, but also still so heartbreaking. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it really challenges the idea of people like myself who do really like the collection and feel some kind of heritage, you know, callback to the stripes and to enjoying owning those pieces from that collection if me wearing it is offensive to a large part of canadians that's something that i shouldn't just gloss over but i need to actually wrestle with and think about it um so it's it's difficult right it's this negotiation of sometimes it's not enough to just like the way that something looks you have to really consider like what does it stand for and what does it mean to other people well, if we can move from the blankets to another iconic part of the HBC collection with a historical background, the Pope coat. This is a coat effectively made at first by wearing a point blanket with a belt. It further evolved into sewing the blanket to alter it permanently into a coat. So once they figured out how to sew the blanket so that it became a coat, they decided to start selling pre-made capotes in the 1700s. Because people had already discovered that they could just kind of throw a belt around this blanket and whoop, there you go. Yeah. It's, it works on two fronts. So they really gained popularity because they were customizable. They had, you know, an element of style to them. They were warm because they were wool blankets that you were wearing around your body as a coat. And they had a lot of freedom of movement. So the most iconic style of the capote became that used by the Métis, with a hood fringing at the shoulders and neck and closed with a bright assumption sash. The color of the sash could state what faith you followed, so there was still an element of style involved that people really enjoyed. So, you know, it's really permeating culture and crossing barriers. It Everyone's wearing it, or almost everyone's wearing it. It's really being absorbed into the Canadian culture at the time, which mm-hmm. is pretty interesting and impressive. It's a way for people to express their identity. Yeah. So in the 1900s, um, that's when HBC repopularized the capotes and started selling them in their department stores as winter wear. And so it came full circle back around again. Um, I actually saw someone the other day on the bus while I was going by and it was a lady and she was wearing like, it was like a trench coat, like a wool trench coaty sort of thing. And it was just white with the stripes on it. Mm. So it was very fancy. Very fancy. I was saying, well, the reason you guys might enjoy some of their new styles so much is that with the launch of the HBC collection in 2009, the company brought on many different fashion designers to sort of try their hands at using the style. So my favorite part of this HBC collection uh, is something that I talked about at the top when we were doing our round robin, but it's the HBC Barbie and she wears an HBC blanket capote, and she even comes with a dog. It's amazing. 
It's $50, but it's an HBC Barbie. What kind of dog does it have? Oh, it's just like a like, single plastic dog. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought they'd get like really specific, like a husky, like no, Barbie's going to go run a dog team. I think, I think it has a name if you like look it up on the internet. It, like There's a description about her and everything. Interesting that, that it's gotten to the peak level that there is now a Barbie involved, but obviously this Barbie was met with its fair share of criticism from First Nations groups who felt that this was selling symbols, literal symbols of colonialism and genocide to children, which fair, you know, like... You're putting it into a doll and you're wrapping it up and giving it to a child and being like, hey, here's this like thing you can play with that symbolizes all of the hurt and pain of this like huge group of Canadians yeah. from hundreds of years. The Hudson's Bay Company actually has a branch, a whole branch, and it's devoted to historical research and maintaining and publicizing the history of the HBC. And it's called HBC Heritage Services. So much like a government does, they have an arts and culture and historical research sort of department, if you will. They also have that book that you can buy at the Hudson's Bay Company. It's the HBC book, and it's full of different archival documents and different photographs of different pieces from their collection and from just the HBC in general. Yeah, the HBC has been uh, supporting more serious historical research and teaching efforts. In 1994, the company donated their archival collection to the Manitoba Archives, shipped it all the way from London. And they have since used their tax savings from doing so to help maintain that archive. They added records to the archive in 2007 and plan to keep doing so with inactive records to continually update the collection. So at the same time, they also donated their collection of artifacts to the Manitoba Museum, also in Winnipeg. Yeah, they also provide teachers with resources that they need in order to teach students about the HBC through their HBC education program. They got lots of programs. They got programs for everything. It's pretty interesting. I mean, they've got the Heritage Services branch, and it maintains collections of art, reference materials, artifacts, and images all related to the HBC. Pretty cool. The HBC Heritage Services has also established an oral history project looking at gathering experiences of modern employees and making these available. So it's like that ongoing corporate history thing. I think that's something that's becoming a lot more popular. I don't know. I think that's really interesting. It's the foresight to see that like, this legacy will continue and we're going to keep just as diligent records now. Yeah, it's um, interesting to see how it's made this step from being you know, a state, essentially, that governs over land and is you know, gathering up raw materials to surrendering that land, but continuing to make goods and sell them instead. And now really realizing that it can kind of capitalize on that past and try to sell nostalgia as its product mm -hmm. and that people will buy it. People everywhere will buy it. We are obsessed with it. Um, it's just like this really interesting kind of evolution to this company and something that I don't think we all consider each time. Like, I think we all feel this kind of connection to the company when we see it or when we see things from it, you know, like, you're like, oh, yeah, like, they're Canadian. They're, like, the oldest department store in Canada. But how often do we actually sit down and think about all that they've, that they've done, the role that they've played within Canadian history, for good, for bad? They are this huge, looming presence, and they don't seem to be going anywhere. They're just still here, still adapting, still changing, but still there and constantly inserting themselves into the narrative. Welcome to Oudna Boot, the segment on the show where we think about things that we've seen in Oudna Boot and we share them and discuss them. 
First really quick one, um, on the day of recording, March 7th, Guy Lombardo and the Royal Canadians recorded their now traditional New Year's song called Anxine, 1938, in London, Ontario, for Decca Records. So that's the one that they play when they drop the ball in New York, and I actually had a friend who is an exchange student from Japan, and she said that they close stores with it, so when it's time to leave and you've got five minutes, they play Old Anxine. Wow. Guy Lombardo. March 7th. Okay, I would never have guessed that that was Canadian. That's so cool. Also, yeah. I love that. That's the way they call it. Time to leave. <laughs> All right, and that's it for everyone. All right, let's, let's close with a kiss <laughs> and get out of the store. <laughs> and for a second, Utnaboot, um, this one is kind of like a rabbit hole. I saw a headline about urban chicken farming taking off in Gatineau, and it had a very foreboding title. It was like, ever since it's been banned in Ottawa, and it seemed very, like, full of hurt. So I read the article. Apparently, urban farming was a huge thing, specifically with chickens in Ottawa up until 2003, when it was banned. So I was reading a bit about that history, and I also discovered that Ottawa has a huge history with poultry. In 1927, Ottawa actually hosted the World Poultry Congress, which had 5,000 delegates from 42 countries, and it featured 6,000 hens. This was at the suggestion of William Moyne Mackenzie King, the then Prime Minister. It was very, it was a really big deal. I, it really ruffles my feathers to think about that many hens. Oh, <laughs> I think you're just pecking her down. Oh. No Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Tuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week's researcher was Nick Johnston. And audio mixing was done by Emily Tuggy and Anna Coons. For more information about the topics we covered, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you like this show, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.